Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens, and I'm the host of My Time Capsule, where I ask my guests to tell me five things from their life that they would like to preserve in a time capsule. They pick four things that they cherish and would like to keep safe, but they also pick one thing that they'd like to put in there so they can bury it and forget it. My guest in this episode is the English comedian, presenter, actor, writer, impressionist, and voiceover artist, Hugh Dennis. Famous for his appearances in every episode of Mock the Week over the past 18 years, and for his brilliant performance in the multi-award-winning comedy Outnumbered. And also for playing Toby in Lee Mack's comedy Not Going Out. But there are so many highlights to Hugh's career that if I list them all, it'll be an hour before we actually get to the podcast. So here are just a few. Spitting Image, The Merry White House Experience, Canned Carrot with Jasper Carrot, The Punt and Dennis Show, Brass Eye, My Hero, Ballot Monkeys, Fleabag, and The Great British Dig on TV, and the long-running satirical topical comedy show, The Now Show, on BBC Radio 4. All of them brilliant. Not to mention the hundreds of voiceovers we've heard him do over the past 30-odd years. Still... Hopefully we will not only find out what he's done, but what he actually cherishes from his life, as we listen to Hugh Dennis's Time Capsule. I look like I'm a giant. When do you do as well? You look like you're resting against the ceiling. Have you got one of those little supports for your computer? Well, you mean like a book? (laughs) Is that the kind of thing you had in mind? <laughs> that is the sort of thing I generally use, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hang on, I'll tell you what, I'm going to get a... a um, this is a little window of life. I'm going to get a cake tin. Oh? As long as it doesn't make too much noise. It's a strange thing to have in the bathroom. <laughs> Look, I've got a Queen's Jubilee Uh-oh. 1977 cake tin. Rather beautiful. Not mine. It's clear. Is, is it the Queen's? I haven't got my headphones on, but I'm sure you're okay. being very witty, but I, ca- I can't actually hear that. <laughs> you're a c- Oh, That's it. no, mm. one cake tin's going to have to do. There's no idea That's, I said that. That's fine. There we are. Perfect. Hello. Just saying how much I love you. Thank you. <laughs> beautiful. Um, you can listen back to the recording later. <laughs> Perfect. Um... It's terribly difficult, isn't it, this thing where I automatically, having discovered all those years ago that your name is Pete... I know. ...and everybody calls you Pete, I call you Pete, and suddenly I have to do this, I have to keep saying Hugh. It's a Hugh. I have to go into sort of professional mode, which I don't have. <laughs> you do. You know you do. <laughs> where are you, down in uh, Tunbridge? Tunbridge Wells, yeah. Up at the nice. top of the house, because I have two grandchildren here, uh, both who are not going to school at the moment. Because... Well, one's got a thing called PDA, 
Oh, okay. Which is called pathological demand avoidance syndrome. That's interesting. We've got two autistic grandchildren, and they're both really struggling with school. Yeah. The demands of it, it's so prescriptive. And How old are they? Um, Natty is 10, and Edie is 8. Okay. Life is a struggle for lots of people, isn't it, really? Yeah, I think it is. I think we categorise people too easily into normal and not normal. Hmm. And in fact, I don't think there is a normal. And also, it's wrong... Although those things are problems, it is sometimes wrong to categorise them as problems, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Some of them, they're advantages, aren't they? Because they allow you to be... You know, if you did a, if you did a cross-section of actors and saw who'd got ADHD or you saw, you know, or creative people who's got ADHD, mm. it would be massively overrepresented, wouldn't it, in that category of people? So yeah, absolutely. Apples. <laughs> are just hiring people with autism because they want people to come in and say, oh, do you know what would be a really, really good thing is if you had it in your thumb? <laughs> and it turns out to be right. <laughs> it yeah. turns out to be worth a fortune. Yeah, whoa. I'm sure yeah. Elon Musk has got many, many, many things going on. Yes. I would have thought. He's absolutely fucking up Twitter at the moment, isn't he? To such oh. an extent that I've decided to call him Elon Trusk. He has <laughs> <laughs> to cover everything. And also the bots won't discover you. No. <laughs> I really enjoy Twitter because I think you make Twitter what you want it to be. Hmm. I never do, actually. I have no social media profile at all. Never happened. No? But no why. Maybe you just think, well, this is my life, not yours. No, no, exactly, yeah. <laughs> Which makes me wonder why you've come on this. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> we'll find out. We'll find out. Uh, well, the first question I was going to ask you, because I did that thing of Googling. Yeah. Oh, well done. And you always find those things that you didn't know. Yeah. So my first question would be, are you still on sabbatical at Unilever? I think I probably am, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although, <laughs> what was slightly odd about... Well, I never told them I was going back. I wasn't coming back, so I suppose mm. I still am on. But I don't. I do still know people at Unilever, and usefully one of the people I know, in fact, the only other person, really, I, I still know, is now the CEO of Unilever. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite useful, We yeah. started on the same day, mm. and uh, there were five of us in my year, and uh, four of us left to go and do other things, and he became the CEO which rather knocks on the head the idea that I could have been a CEO because clearly he would have been the yes, CEO. Yes, no, he's better at it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's better at it. He's just significantly better at it. Yeah. So, that happens um, though, doesn't it, particularly to actors, is you watch everybody around you get promoted and there really isn't a promotion in acting. No, but you also realise at the same time that's why you do it, isn't it? I mean, it's yeah. one of the reasons I left Unilever was because I really didn't like the idea of knowing exactly what, they had job grades and job classes at that point. And when I left, I think I was a JC22 <laughs> Whatever that is. And that yeah. was, exactly. But you kind of knew, you had a sort of career progression. You also knew pretty much, it was, I mean, it would have been an interesting career. I was about to go abroad. I was going to get sent to Japan for three years. Wow. Or Japan or Milan for three years to oh. run. But you're still running a deodorant. Yeah, And then you come back and then you get sent off again and then you come back and then, you know, and you end up marketing director of one of their kind of big companies or chairman or running you leave. Yes. <laughs> but it sort of was a bit, you know, I was doing clubs with Steve Punt on Saturday night at the same time. So it, the mm. contrast between the two was fairly stark, actually. Yeah. Because we were on telly at the same time, but very, very good in terms of not disappearing up your own fundament <laughs> because you would go into work. However great a comedy store people thought you were or however good you thought you'd been on Jasper Carrot, you would walk in on, to Unilever on a Monday morning and people would go, mm, yeah, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> <laughs> or just tell you you were shit. You yeah. Know? I mean, it could be either. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> could be either, yeah. Yes. I, I have that all the way through my career. You look around at people... Well, we know several ourselves, don't we? You know, look at yeah. Jimmy Moville, who yeah. you know, was a performer with us all and then suddenly runs this massive television company. And yeah. I have a friend, Danny Batsek, who I was at university with, who said, I think I might go into films. I'm going to try going to the films, Mike. And I sort of lost touch with him and his wife, Lucy. And the next thing I knew, he was head of Miramax. <laughs> I say it worked for him. Yeah. Yeah, no, he did well. Yeah, he's just been made head of film four. It's astonishing, isn't it, really? Mm. The guy I sat next to at school from the age of 11 to uh, 16 was a guy called Danny Finkelstein, North London School, who is now Baron Finkelstein. Really? 
<laughs> and writes uh, writes in the Times. Yeah, lovely guy, actually. It's, it is sort of amazing, isn't it? It is ridiculous, because you look at yourself, yeah. and you're doing the same thing. Yes. Yeah, My wife's family name is Finkelstein. Oh, really? Mm. When they came to England, they changed it to uh, Fenton from really? Finkelstein, yeah. Did they? Mm. I think Danny Finkelstein's great worry was that we would realise when we were 13 that actually Finkelstein means Flintstone. <laughs> <laughs> you just called him Fred. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Where's Barney? Yeah. <laughs> so there we are, Unilever. Yeah. That's something I didn't know. Did you not know no. that? But you didn't, you didn't know I'd worked there or you didn't know that I was still on sabbatical? <laughs> no, I didn't know you'd worked there. Uh, did you not? No. At that same stage, though, I worked at Unilever, I think from 84, which is when I left uni, to 1990, I think. But what that meant was that the most formative bit of our career, really, I was still working for mm. Unilever. So I did five series of Jasper Carrot wow. while still working at Unilever. And I used to turn up, so uh, <laughs> one of my oldest friends now, this guy called Macca, not, not Macca, but Macca. Yeah. And uh, he gave me pretty much my first voiceover. He says I stood out because I came at lunchtime and I was in a suit. <laughs> 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 Well, yeah. thank goodness it wasn't an advert for something that Unilever made. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> Although I have subsequently done that. I've actually advertised the brand of which I was brand manager. So I was the brand manager of Lynx, deodorant body spray for men. <laughs> or not really men, but for teenage boys. Yes. And um, I did lots of radio ads for them uh, about five or six years after wow. I left. Yeah. So, so whose idea was it then that you would attract young men to it by pretending that spraying it all over you meant that women immediately found you attractive? Well, I think it was, uh, I think it was just a standard sort of route, wasn't it, at that mm. point? So in my stable of brands, I had links, but also in that stable was denim aftershave. Oh. The promise of which was exactly the same, but in fact, slightly, slightly less nuanced. <laughs> <laughs> Is that possible? It was for men who don't have to try too hard. And then you got the hand coming across in the denim shirt. Although you still think that actually, like all things, isn't it? Even though you're told it's not true, you still hold on to it. That's why they sell. Yeah, exactly. You're going, the promise of it is, um, it was an ironic promise, but nonetheless believed. But do you know what I found interesting about perfume when I first started (laughs) at Unilever was this research, I think done in the 50s or 60s, possibly even earlier, about... The only way at that point in which men would wear perfume was if you made it hurt. So the sting in aftershave is sort of deliberate, really. Wow. Because if you, you slap it on and you go, that enables you <laughs> to smell of it for the rest of the day. You have to go through a pain barrier to remain masculine while <laughs> wearing perfume. I mean, clearly, you know, it's interesting, isn't it, over the however many years it is since I was doing it, 30 years or whatever, that that's just completely changed, doesn't it? Nobody's remotely worried about that, are they? Or, no. You know, nobody wore moisturiser on their face. We tried to no. launch moisturisers for men and all that sort of stuff, you know, to be ahead of the curve, but people... Mm. They simply, I can see from your face on the Zoom. It's been treated. You do a lot of moisturiser, yeah. I've got that little button on that says, make me look younger. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, the look younger filter. That's what I've got on, yeah. Yeah. I'm wearing the younger filter. (laughs) (laughs) It's great. (laughs) But I'm very glad, actually, you know, I didn't, I wasn't there for very long, but at that point I had absolutely no idea that comedy was a career, really. I mean, the... I'd done it so for such a short time at university that I, it didn't even occur to me that you could earn a living from it. No. So I went and got a I went and got a proper job. I mean, although this is a proper job, I always object to that. Actually, and I've just done it myself. Yeah. But that idea that somehow acting or performing or you know it's not a proper job seems wrong. But I think that's probably changing with generations, isn't it? As well, because so many people have. You know, all that stuff about, are you sure it's very insecure going to be an actor? Are you sure you you should do that? You know, that people would say to you, you could, you could now apply that to pretty much every job yeah. in the world, couldn't you? I feel like I'm in actually quite a secure profession. Yes. <laughs> people would always need people to be silly. Yeah. But I think that the main thing I took out of Unilever, and I'm very glad I did it for this reason, is the idea of sort of everything being a business somehow. Mm. And you can apply certain things right across the board, can't you, Matt? I mean, it's sort of really stupid things like 
cash flow, <laughs> all those kinds of things. Instead of going in and going, oh, I'm just going to be a funny man, or I'm going to be, a, I'm going to be an actor, and I'm going to do all that. You kind of go, well, you get, yeah, that's, that's great, but you've got, also got to attend to those slightly more. Yes, the bills, taxation. Yeah, so yeah and then you've got to make sure that you can do that. I remember lots of people, you know, later on saying, I've had an unexpected tax bill, and I've always thought, I genuinely don't understand how that can be unexpected. <laughs> Does it not come at pretty much the same time every year? I know. And, <laughs> they say, yeah, but it was it was over a year ago that I earned that money. I've forgotten all about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Did you not write it down? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I was like that anyway, actually. But, yeah. but I'm very glad I, I did it for that reason. But you also, when you say you didn't think comedy could be a career, you were then involved in, well, what for many was the turning point. Yeah. Actually doing comedy in arenas. And nobody had thought of that. Well, we we sort of... I mean, that was during Mary Whitehouse's experience, wasn't it? Mm. That period where when, you know, comedy is the new rock and roll and all that sort of stuff, wasn't it? Mm. I think it was less the new rock and roll for me and Steve than it was for <laughs> Dave Bedell and Rob Newman. So when we toured, you know, we all still got on fine, but actually we toured as two separate groups. So Dave and Rob went off and did Wembley and we did the Hippodrome or mm. something. You know, we were far more sort of tradition we like a nice we go is there a pros arch yeah yeah it's much you know, easier it seems much more much more sort of intimate well let's face it a lot of stage comedy involves looking into the wings i think yeah is saying something funny and then checking if anybody's heard it <laughs> you double the yeah. laugh yeah there is this fantastic there's also a fantastic thing you can get on the internet called Morecambe and Wise live at the Fairfield Hall I've seen, seen it that? yeah it's amazing their sort of version of that is where Ernie comes on maybe and says I'm sorry I'm late there was a fracker outside and there it goes fracker can you say that <laughs> <laughs> and then he looks as you say into the wings into the wings and then every time something doesn't go quite as well as they're hoping, he looks into the wings and he goes, No! Fracker! <laughs> <laughs> it's a and brilliant it's, device, and it bridges, yeah. yeah, bridges the gap. No, it's great. Yeah. I went to see Frankie Howard once at the Lyric, you know, years and years after. You know, we had this sort of revival. I suppose it was early 90s. Mm. He would do a joke. And then if it didn't work, he would simply go, oh, I'm not giving up, no. <laughs> and he just kept on repeating it. It was so funny. Yeah. Just really funny. He was brilliant at that. Yeah. That's what all that no, don't, don't comes yeah. from. They're not. <laughs> <laughs> no. no. So uh, we ought to talk about the thing we're supposed to talk about. But it, yes. But I think we've talked enough. So thanks very much for talking to me. Yeah, thank enjoy. you very much, Mike. <laughs> Lovely. Love to see you and your moisturised face. <laughs> thank <It's> fantastic. You. <laughs> so we're going to talk about five things from your life you'd like to put into a time capsule. Yeah. How's that been? Well, weirdly, it's quite difficult, really, because I... Um, it sort of forced me to think about my attitude to life. Oh. <laughs> it's gone quite deep. And oh. I think, would I ever do a time capsule? I think I genuinely try always to live my life looking forward rather than backwards. Mm. So I have, and I think I probably got that from my parents, actually, so, who were sort of um, ruthless <laughs> <laughs> about throwing things away. You know, so you were you were sort of allowed. You were kind of allowed to to look back, but you never. Um, they weren't quite as bad as I had a, f a friend at university who gave his parents. So uh, at Cambridge and we, my college and the team I was in, one season we won everything playing rugby. So we won the the cup and the league and the sevens and the whole lot. We were both in that side, and uh, he gave his parents his rugby shirt to look after. And the next time he went home. They were using it as a floor cloth. <laughs> <laughs> so they were. <laughs> his most treasured item. Yeah, his most treasured item now being used to wipe the kitchen floor or to, to dry the dog or whatever, <laughs> whatever it was used for. And my mum and dad weren't quite like that, but there were very few mementos. And I equally have literally almost nothing. <laughs> Um, do you think that's to do with moving around? Didn't your your father was a vicar, wasn't he? So yeah, he was a vicar who became a, a bishop. I said, I think it might have been. They were very interesting people, actually. I mean, I've got a couple. You know, a couple of the things relate to them. But they had met at the university in the nineteen fifties, where they were both reading theology. Right. So my dad went on to be a, a vicar and a, a bishop mm. subsequently, and my mum, I think, probably would have done 
had that been possible or legal (laughs) at the time. But what they did do was they became this sort of incredibly sort of compact unit who kind of seemed to spend most of their lives actually not really looking after themselves, although they they kind of did, but, you know, but actually looking out for everyone else. And even, so they they both, uh, you know, they're both dead now, but they both died at the age of 88. And if you'd said to them, within six weeks of each other, if you had said to them, what are you doing this weekend, two months before they died, whatever, they would say, well, on Sunday, we're looking after the old people. (laughs) (laughs) You're 88. (laughs) And most of the old people were younger than them. So I think it was sort of born, I think it was slightly born anyway, of this kind of wish to never concentrate on yourself, really, I think. Oh, listen to my cuckoo clock. Have you got (laughs) that? That's lovely. It's completely wrong. (laughs) (laughs) It's quarter to 12, that's good. (laughs) It doesn't take the right time at all. Um, Uh, So did they work as a team then within the church? So your father had to do the sermons, but did your mum write sermons for him, things like that? No, no, no. no. He didn't even write sermons. I'm sure this has helped in my career, actually, slightly, was that he never, ever used notes. I mean, I used copious notes. (laughs) He never used notes. (laughs) And I used to, on a Saturday night, if he was preaching on the Sunday morning, I would walk past the bathroom and I'd hear him mumbling to himself in the bath doing the sermon for the next day. Mm-hmm. But he never did that thing. In comedy, you know, you always have to go, the basis of my sermon this morning is John chapter 1, <laughs> verses 6 to 7. <laughs> and then they read it. And then he did say, he never did that. No. He just sort of stood up there and, and said something. And sometimes it did sound like he really just thought of it. <laughs> <laughs> maybe he had. Sometimes, maybe he just hadn't had time for a bath. That is the, the skill, though, isn't it, actually? That thing of yeah. practising it in the bathroom. Yeah. And you do end up sounding as if you've just made it up. The only time I have actually had to do it completely off the cuff was when... Um, so there was one year in which Outnumbered won pretty much everything, actually. <laughs> and in all of these ceremonies... Guy Jenkin and Andy Hamilton, because, you know, they were the, they were really the creative force behind it, weren't they? And yeah. Everyone else was just sort of in it, really. <laughs> they had always done the speech. So when we won, I don't know, whatever it was, the RTS or the Comedy Award or whatever it was, they would stand up and do the speech. Cut to the National Television Awards when, you know, by public vote, outnumbered is given this thing. So we all stand up, Andy and Guy stand up, I stand up, Claire stands up, kids stand up. We all are heading for this thing and I go you're doing the speech aren't you and he went no 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 it's you <laughs> why didn't you say well uh, well I thought you I thought you knew they weren't there <laughs> so uh, I found myself in front of I can't remember how many you know it was sort of like 10 million people or something just kind <laughs> of going going oh, oh. that's worth know. googling I don't know what to say yeah. that's going to be looked up on YouTube yeah <laughs> <laughs> I think it was all right actually I think I told my own children to go to bed I think that's what I said that's oh, very like good something crap like that but we yeah. still haven't discovered what the first thing is you want to put no into no a time okay capsule. so the first thing in my time capsule is one of the very few things actually that my parents kept actually and I have subsequently kept, is a little model of a caravan. (laughs) It's a sort of dinky toy caravan. (laughs) And the reason I would put that in my time capsule is that caravanning, actually, until I was about 16, (laughs) was sort of the thing. It's the thing that we did every summer Mm. was go off uh, caravanning. And we went, for for all of us, really, we never left Britain... (laughs) <laughs> just he just didn't go abroad. No, never went abroad. And the whole of my dad's family, so he had two sisters, and they all caravaned. My grandparents caravaned. So in the summer, we would meet in some sort of godforsaken caravan <laughs> site <laughs> somewhere in Snowdonia or somewhere, <laughs> and just spend time caravaning. And um, it was, I mean, it was incredibly sort of. Formative. I'm sure I, I complained about it a lot, really, mm. at the time, because it, everybody's in terribly close quarters. But what it does mean is that I have this sort of ridiculous knowledge of Britain's national parks, because <laughs> <laughs> that's where we're headed. And I think I've been to 
pretty much every cathedral in Britain, but only in the rain, because that's the only days you ever went to. Yes. <laughs> or castle. They were all holidays like that. And I had a cagoule onto which I sewed, well, my mum probably did, actually, sewed all the badges of everywhere I'd ever, you know, I'd sort of... <laughs> Immediately defeating the idea of a cagoule, because it makes it <laughs> yeah, exactly. not waterproof. <laughs> no, exactly. It's just double the thickness. That's all. So I had all that and sort of memories of, um, for some reason, I, I still don't really understand this. And I think it was a bit like, um, you know, in that generation at Christmas, people went, well, the shops are going to be closed. So we're going to have to stock up. Mm. So people would go out and buy like 12 pints of milk and like <laughs> 400 loaves of bread. <laughs> and you put things in the freezer. You think, well, they'll be open. When they be open again the day after Boxing Day? Yeah. <laughs> that kind of, I suppose it might have been the war that did it, mm. actually. You know, you always think there was going to be a shortage. So when we went caravanning, for some reason, my mother thought we won't be able to find carrots. I don't know why. <laughs> and why you would want to have carrots. Anyway, they bought in bulk dehydrated carrots. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a dehydrated carrot. No, I haven't, no. No, no. no they tinned? Yeah, why not buy a tin of carrots? That's probably, <laughs> that's probably much better. Maybe they take up too much space or they weigh too I mean, there are always questions of weight. <laughs> anyway, we went round with these bags and bags and bags of dehydrated carrots <laughs> and sort of strange sort of mints because but clearly in North Wales or somewhere, they're not going to have carrots. I would have thought they're more likely to have have carrots. Well, shops, you would think. <laughs> yeah, shops. Yeah. Just go to a shop and buy some carrots. <laughs> but it was all dehydrated food and bags and bags and bags of Cadbury's smash. You know, but I have, I have very, very, very fond memories of it, actually. Mm. Until my brother's two years older than me. So when he was 18 and he was 16, I think it was the summer I was waiting for my exam results. Probably he was as well, actually. My parents decided that the caravan really was too small now for us all to go in. But they thought, well, we must Again, this was very much what my parents were like. So you can't just have a holiday in which you do nothing. We've got to have a sort of purpose to keep everybody entertained and all the rest of it. So what we'll do is we'll go on a craft holiday. <laughs> so they looked up, you know, places that offered craft holidays. And we went off to a disused post office on the island of Mull, <laughs> rented a cottage. And we did a course and we all did different things. And my dad did photography. My mum did painting, did she? And my brother might have done pottery or something. And I spent two weeks, as I remember it, making a raffia guitar strap. <laughs> and I didn't even have a guitar. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't have one. But it all seemed completely normal. I mean, it was nice. It's these things, isn't it? It was also the year in which my... Because I went to school in North London. I went to school in Hampstead, North London. And half the school was Jewish. And again, you know, I was, there were five vicar sons at this <laughs> That was the only avowedly atheist school in Britain. Yes. Anyway, they were all off on kibbutz. Most of my mates were on kibbutz having their first sexual experiences and picking olives and stuff. And I was making a, a raffia guitar strap <laughs> off the northwest coast of Scotland. Very happy memories. It's funny what you do as a child that you look back on fondly because... Uh, we went to either caravan parks, so we stayed in caravans, or we yeah. went to holiday parks quite often where they also had entertainment. But I do remember very fondly sitting around that table, little cramped table, playing cards or some game, yeah. with, pouring with rain outside. Nothing else to do, but just feeling very content. Yeah. We generally were away for my mum's birthday in August. Mm. And every year my dad made my mum her birthday meal, which was this thing that he'd learnt to make called cheese fritters, which seemed... <laughs> which I well, they dehydrated. Well, I don't know. I expect some of the ingredients. <laughs> it was sort of like onion and cheese in... I think it was sort of like a batter, really. And I think he was still doing it. I think until, you know, sort of I was in my 30s or something, at which point my mum said, like, I've never really dared tell you this, I don't like cheese food. Oh! <laughs> yeah, I think they're really bad for you. Yeah, <laughs> They're sure. basically fried cheese. <laughs> That's amazing, isn't yeah. it, all that time? Yeah. Well, the other way round, my mum fed my dad cabbage Every day, she'd read an article, I think, in the 1960s in the dentists or something that said, you know, which is quite right. That if you have, if you eat lots of 
brassicas. It reduces your chance of cancer. <laughs> so sort of subsequently, she had fed cabbage to <laughs> all of us, in fact. <laughs> I mean, I don't know the rights or wrongs or the truth or otherwise of cabbage as a, as a you know, sort of anti-carcinogen, but it took about the same length of time to say that he really didn't like cabbage. <laughs> <laughs> and he pretty much had it every meal, I think. It sounds anyway. like the perfect marriage. <laughs> well, there you go. Maybe that's what a perfect marriage is, is somebody putting yeah. up with something they don't like as a sign of love. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. You know, but uh, and caravanning actually was very funny. There were just lots of very sort of entertaining aspects of caravanning. And travelling as well. You like, well, you remember the Royal Geographical Society I read yeah, this yeah, morning, yeah. which is, you know, that's impressive. Yeah, I am, yeah. So that whole thing of going around the country looking at castles and churches and... Yeah, things. yeah, all that kind of stuff, really, that you would otherwise miss, I think. I, I suffer, I think, I don't know whether suffer is the right word, but I, do, I am sort of pretty much interested in everything. <laughs> you know, show me a brick. I'll go, well, well <laughs> really interesting bricks. All right, I'm going to put the little model of a caravan, yeah. Yeah. That goes in, that's the first thing you... OK, anybody fancy a break? Oh, that's handy, as we're just about to have one, which my producer and son, John, and I hope will be full of adverts. We'll be back after they've finished. Cheers. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back. Okay, let's find out what else the delightful Hugh Dennis will choose to put in his time capsule. I sort of thought of these things in terms of things that changed my life and I love as well. That's good. So the second one... When I say balls have changed my life, what I mean is... <laughs> Not in the Richard Herring way, no. No, no. The ones that you kick or hit or whatever. Mm. So the, the second thing I've decided to put in, because I really do think this altered the course of my life, is a golf ball. Now, I don't have the actual golf ball, but just a golf ball. Mm -hmm. And this is because... The day after I finished my A-levels, I went to play golf for the first time. And five of us from school, all of whom had finished, went off to Stanmore Golf Course in North London to play golf. And because there were five of us and we none of us really understood the etiquette of the golf course. No. <laughs> we were playing as a five. And people <laughs> behind us were getting very, very cross. <laughs> so to speed things up, I decided foolishly to kind of get ahead of the ball. So we were all sort of playing shots at the same time, really. And for some, somehow I'd managed to get the ball on the green, I think, somewhere. So I was on the green where my friend Bryn decided to launch a lofted eight iron, <laughs> <laughs> but didn't shout four, and it landed on my head. 
and it um, split my head open. Oh, my God. But he refused. I mean, it was, I was bleeding profusely from this head wound, but he refused to take me to hospital immediately because the ball had bounced off my head to within about six inches. <laughs> and he was on for a birdie. So anyway, he putted out, and then they took me off to Stanmore, uh, or Edgware General Hospital, I think we went, where I had to have half of my head shaved, effectively, because I had like seven stitches or five stitches in the left-hand side of my head. Mm. All of which is very insignificant, except to that the next day, it was speech day at the school, and I was the head boy of the school, and I had to make a speech. (laughs) (laughs) You turned up looking like a punk. I turned up looking like a punk, and I was meant to do this speech about how good the school had been at football and how many people we got into, Oxbridge or, you know, and all that. And I thought, well, I, I, I will do all that, but I know that most of the parents are going to be going... What's going on? Yeah. So I thought I would explain what had happened. So I told the story as the very first thing in my speech, and people laughed. And I had until that point, I'd done one school play. I hadn't done anything really. And I thought this is rather nice. I rather like the idea that people laugh when you (laughs) when you speak. And I do genuinely think it was a sort of a very sort of formative moment in my life, which I owe to a golf ball. How very interesting. Mm. That really makes you think, doesn't it? That actually, it makes me look back and think, is there a moment? And again, those moments in school where everything could go disastrously wrong. I mean, if you'd said that and everybody just stared at you, you might have thought, well, I'm never going to speak in public again. Yeah. You know, whereas I remember that. I remember being asked by my English teacher, would I be in a debate? He said, you're quite good at making stuff up. You always make stuff about why you haven't done your homework. Yeah, or even in your homework, I imagine. Well, I hope so. Did you just make stuff up? Yeah. Yeah. And the subject that came up was uh, why I hate going up to bed. And the moment the thing came up, I thought of a joke. Yeah. And I thought, I'll do that at the end. So I talked about, you know, <laughs> the process of, you know, we don't really want to go to bed. There's television programmes you want to watch and, and it means that the next day is going to come and you won't have done your homework and you're worried about that and you've got to go another day at school. And I did all those things that you can think of on the yeah. spot. And at the end I said, but actually the real reason I hate going upstairs to bed is that I live in a bungalow. <laughs> Oh, that's very funny. Well, it was, I mean, it genuinely was a formative moment. It took me many more years to think, you know, it's sort of reasonable to to think that actually that's a way your life can go. Yeah. Standing up in front of people, up in front of people, rather than what I just said, which didn't make any sense. <laughs> utter fun to people. That made things. No, you don't want to do that. Sense. No, 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 no. Although, who knows, maybe it really will make people laugh. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But it was... Um, I had all sorts of weird things happen in speech days, actually, which, again, you know, in terms of comedy and all that kind of stuff were quite quite useful. It was sort of a very fond memory. So when I, was, um, when I was 16, I won the fourth form prize at school, and I didn't know what to get at all, really. And my parents, because, they, again, they're terribly liberal, they didn't, they didn't go get something that makes you look clever. They just went, well, just go and buy a book you want. Right? And at that point, I was obsessed by bicycles. I mean, I still am slightly obsessed by bicycles. I was obsessed by bicycles. And Harold Wilson came to give the prizes that year because his kids had been at the school in Hampstead, which, again, you would never happen now. Labour Prime Minister, a private kids at a private school. <laughs> no. <laughs> no one said anything. No one said anything. Anyway, he was presenting everybody else with copies of the Iliad and the complete works of Shakespeare and all the rest of it. And he was an incredibly bright man, Harold Wilson. And I allowed myself to be presented by him at the age of 16 with a Reader's Digest book of home improvement <laughs> because, it, <laughs> because it had a section on bicycle maintenance at the back of it. And that's what I did every weekend. I just took my bicycle apart and then put it back together again. <laughs> funny times. Yeah. Very funny times. Okay, well, let's take that golf ball. Is that golf ball going in? Yes, the, the blooded golf ball will go in. Yeah. The, uh, the other thing that I would put into this time capsule, again, just because it's, I've had it for so long and for some reason I keep it, and I don't quite know why, is a tank top. Has anybody else <laughs> done this kind of stuff? No. I don't think so, no. Uh, no, no. I have a tank top which my mum knitted for me, which, I, again, I couldn't really say to her, oh, no, I just think that's... I'm never going to wear that. Because <laughs> she spent so long knitting this thing. It was blue and grey. And um, she gave it to me just before I went to university uh-huh. when no-one was wearing tank tops and certainly not blue and grey thing knitted by your mother. 
And I kept it. I kept it out of a sort of sense of guilt for years, for like another 10 years. It just lived in a drawer <laughs> until Steve and I started doing this thing called the Mary Whitehouse Experience. And in the Mary Whitehouse Experience, we sort of invented a character called Mr. Strange, not to be confused with Dr. Strange, as played by Benedict Cumberbatch, mm-hmm. far superior character called Mr. Strange, yes. years ahead. Yeah, that's where he got ahead. the idea from. Yeah, exactly. He's nothing but a plagiarist, that Cumberbatch. Yeah, back. exactly. Although uh, Doctor Strange, I know, doesn't sniff milk and do... <laughs> and go, milky, milky. Milky, which milky. Was the, which yes. was essentially the tenor of this character. <laughs> he just went, milk, milky, milky. That's what he did. And for this character, I thought, I've got to find some stuff to wear that is sort of slightly nerdy and it looks like it'd be worn by a man who sniffs milk in the supermarket. <laughs> And is obsessed by yogurt, and I just came across this, this tank top in a in the drawer, so I wore it to play Milky Milky <laughs> for like the next five years. I never mentioned it to my mum, but I, I'm she, I'm sure she would have looked. <laughs> I thought, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. I think I knitted that in 1979, <laughs> didn't I? Why is he wearing? It? It's a lovely tank top. Why doesn't he wear that out? Um, <laughs> He was never that keen so, on milk. I don't understand it. No, that's really odd. But anyway, that just sort of goes in. That's as a, lovely. And, and actually, it goes, there's a bit of a history of that kind of stuff, actually, because the other thing that I had was a, so in the 1960s, so I was born in 62, and in 1962, we moved to the Isle of Dogs in the East End of London, and we, um, we used to do all our shopping for clothes and things. There was a place called Crisp Street Market, which was in Poplar. I know, so well. Pro- proper old market. Yeah. Hard to believe now, but I was a small little cockney boy. And um, my parents bought, me and my brother John, they bought us a jumper each. He had a green one and I had a blue one. And it was light blue, sort of Man City blue, with a kind of alternating blue square and then a red square. And I loved this. Mm. I loved this jumper. And I kept it. Never, ever threw it away. And then when my daughter got to, who is now 23, when she got to about 16, just for a laugh, I went, oh, I've kept this jumper. I've kept this jumper since 19, whenever it was. I think I got, must have got it in 1966, I think, 1967. I said, Look, I've kept this jumper in this drawer. And she went, oh, can I try it on? <laughs> and she tried it on and she went, can I have this? I think it looks really good. So now she went, I regularly... <laughs> I regularly see it. It was bought for a four-year-old, but it's, it was entirely untainted by natural fibre. And it's therefore <laughs> so stretchy. Yeah. It's one size fits all from a four-year-old to, you know, someone, someone in their 60s, and then it sort of shrinks. Fantastically retro. I mean, really great, retro, right? yeah. Thank God you didn't give it to your mate's parents. They would have used it to clean the floor. <laughs> exactly. It wouldn't have been absorbent, ah. believe me. They wouldn't have soaked anything up. It just would have made a mess. <laughs> I went caravanning in the sense of taking a caravan behind you on a car for the first time with a friend of mine from school and his parents. And they came from that era, from Poplar. So quite often oh, did they? quite often they would say, we're going up to London to the market. And I would go with them yeah. to Crisp Street Market. Yeah. Well, it was all, um, you know, when you, when you go abroad, I remember going to Marrakesh not that long ago and feeling really sort of discombobulated by Marrakesh. There are lots of sort of noises that you don't, I mean, the, the, in the souk, in the middle of Marrakesh, it's all sort of noise and people with snakes and huh. selling fruit and there are lots of sort of monkeys running around. You know, all that sort of stuff where you're going, oh, I'm okay. <laughs> And I suddenly thought, actually, all that's different here is that you don't actually understand the language. I mean, this isn't that dissimilar to an East End market where people are just going, oh, chums, lovely chums. <laughs> Shout it. It's all sort of noise and people beckoning you in, isn't it? And yeah. um, I loved all that kind of stuff. I loved the, um, I loved the hardware stalls in markets, mm. which are like 600 washing up bowls and <laughs> <laughs> strange sponges that you would never use yes. and cloths and dishcloths, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But I used to love all that. The sort of um, growing up in the East End was fantastic, actually. It's uh, just a very, very entertaining place to, to grow up. Yeah, we can tell exactly what the time is. Yeah, when well, he Although can't. the cuckoo clock is completely wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the number, it, it's pointing in the right direction, but it's the number of cuckoos is, is midday. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> Apparently. <Yeah. laughs>
But that's it. That's the uh, that's the jumper. The tank top, yeah. She managed to hit the gap where nobody was wearing it. She did all sorts of rather extraordinary things, actually. You know, it was a time of thrift, wasn't it? And um, I had a pair of jeans that I'd grown out of, but she sort of refused to accept, really, that I had grown out of these jeans. And she read in Woman's Own or Woman's Weekly or something that, you know, you'd be much more likely to wear a pair of lengthened jeans if you put... (laughs) If you didn't lengthen them with denim, oh, no, that would be much too obvious. You should lengthen them with a little bit of ribbon. Uh, But you shouldn't put the ribbon at the bottom. You should put the ribbon attractively on trend in the middle of the thigh. (laughs) (laughs) Really peculiar. So I had this pair of... Again, it was one of those awful moments where you go, oh, no, I just can't. I know you've spent hours doing that, but I literally cannot be seen outside. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I'll wear them in the house. I just can't. (laughs) I can't wear them. I literally can't wear them. He's such a strange boy. Every time he comes in, he just rushes to his bedroom and then comes out in those jeans. (laughs) Yes. I had a pair of, um, do you remember those nature track shoes that Clark's made? Yes. That were known as the Cornish pasty. They were the ones that folded over and they had a sort of like a vibram sole or something, although it wasn't called that. And uh, I demanded, as much as I ever demanded anything, I requested that my... My um, school shoes, I'd like a pair for my school shoes because I thought they looked pretty cool. Mm. But the problem was they just would not wear out. They literally would not wear out. (laughs) And eventually I had to attack them where my parents were at with my dad's Black & Decker drill. (laughs) (laughs) I can't wear these anymore. I've got massive holes in the sole. I don't know where they came from. I have no idea, but they're terrible in wet weather. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, yeah. so we've got the tank top in there, so we've got two more, You. Oh, we've got two more, one being a bad thing. Two more, one being a bad thing, that's right. Um, the last thing I'm going to save, put in this time capsule, is a mitre, my dad's mitre. <laughs> it's all clothing, I could wear um, <laughs> a tank top, a mitre, got a golf ball in there and a model of a caravan, perfect. <laughs> and the, but the reason I put that in is because it sort of reminds me, you know, it's a sort of feeling, really. And it's about, it's really about how sort of important it is to be supportive, I think. So when I left university and started doing this, one of the very first things that I did was spitting image. So I did, you know, first iteration spitting image. And I took over from Harry Enfield Mm -hmm. and I got lots of his voices. So I did Douglas Hurd and all these kinds of things. And one of the voices I got was the Archbishop of Canterbury. (laughs) (laughs) Which is slightly awkward because my dad... (laughs) knew the Archbishop of Canterbury. In fact, my dad was by then a bishop, right? And again, I just thought this is sort of blind pride in your children's achievements, right? So, which is great. He told, in what I think of as career suicide, really, but it wasn't, but he told the Archbishop of Canterbury that I did the Archbishop of Canterbury's voice on spitting. (laughs) Yeah, which was sort of amazing at, at a sort of House of Bishops meeting. And he proudly told the Archbishop of Canterbury that, and it was fine. And when, at the end of my dad's career, he went into the, you know, these things called the Lord Spiritual, because the Church of England is the sort of state religion, effectively. Mm. And the Lord Spiritual sit on the cross benches. And for the last five years or so of his career, my dad became a Lord Spiritual and he had to be welcomed into the House of Lords. So I went along with my mum for this thing. My dad processed into the chamber of the House of Lords on the finger of the Archbishop of Canterbury. He held his fingers in this very sort of strange way. (laughs) And he processed along. And he looked up at the gallery and he saw me and my mum sitting there. And I thought, oh, no, God, the Archbishop of Canterbury is sitting. And he knows, doesn't he? He knows. And at that point, he dropped my dad's finger. And he looked up at me. And I thought, oh, no, 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 no. And he just put a massive smile on and he waved like a, <laughs> like a crazy man. I mean, the thing I really remember about that day is the sort of, and everybody sort of living their own lives. And my parents never went, why are you doing, why on earth are you doing that? And I, the only at- occasion I really thought about it actually was when I was doing the Mary Whitehouse experience. I said to my dad, it's sometimes a bit difficult, you know, being a comedian and having a dad who's a bishop. And he went, well, here's a secret. It's sometimes quite difficult being a bishop. he's a comedian (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know so that's why it's there really you can never really think of your life as your own entirely can you i don't think because you're you're here because you are 
lots of things that have happened and lots of coincidences have, that have happened and, you know, what your parents did or what your uncle or where they, you know, where you all came, all that kind of stuff. Mm. You can't really ever take credit entirely for the thing that you've done. You've just been in a position to take advantage of it, haven't you? Yeah. yeah. That's all that's gone on and you're not you're not sort of amazingly brilliant is in and of yourself or whatever. You're just this sort of amalgam of lots of different people have all come together. But one of the most important aspects of that, actually, for me, has always been having people around who've just gone, yeah, 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 no, do that, mm. yeah, no, that's fine. Yeah. And they've never gone, I think it'd be much more sensible if you were an accountant or not that, you know, I mean, I'm sure I would have been happy when we need accountants. That's not to disparage accountants. No. But it is to sort of... You know, you go and live your own life, don't you? Yeah, and quite often that's difficult for a parent. A parent might feel that a child is is messing their life up and they want to say to yeah. them, you know, what are you doing? And to step back and not do it is impressive. Yeah, but I think it's also, you sort of have to acknowledge, don't you, as you get older and you have your career yourself, actually, is that you don't fully understand the world which is following you. It's not a frightening thing. It's not... You know, oh, they're getting all wrong and all that. But mm. there are literally jobs now that didn't exist. No. I mean, I, I, you can't possibly say to your child, well, I think it would make much more sense if you did A, B and C, because that comes entirely from your experience. Yeah, yeah. And they know far more about it than you do. Yeah. And you just sort of have to let them get on with it, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, I'm buying lots of property in cyberspace at the moment, obviously, because I oh, yeah. understand that inside out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Have you got lots of non-fungible artwork? <laughs> I don't understand um, non-fungible tokens at all. No I don't understand idea. why you would want to buy... It's like buying an Athena print of something, isn't it, rather than buying the actual thing, isn't yeah. it? But the Athena print has some... No one will understand what an Athena print is, but it's, it's, like <laughs> oh, po- it's like buying a poster of an artwork, isn't it? Yeah. But for some reason, you've got the only poster, therefore it has value or something. I don't understand that. I want the actual thing which has been actually properly painted, surely. Yeah. I'm sort of delighted by the fact that the metaverse isn't really working. <laughs> surely real life is more exciting. Yeah, sure. It must be, mustn't it? And also, the problem with the metaverse is that you might meet Mark Zuckerberg, I think. (laughs) So we're going to move on to the last thing, which is something you want to put in and throw away. Yeah, well, I've always been sort of slightly ashamed, actually, of my A-level results. And I'm just loving them in the ground. (laughs) Not that anybody's ever asked me, really, what I got, but I completely cocked up my A-level. It was because I had a girlfriend in a car, I think, at that point. Uh, And also because, and please, anyone listening who's on the verge of choosing these things, I chose my A-levels on the basis that my brother hadn't done them the same ones. mm -hmm. And he's older than me. So he did all the A-levels that I really wanted to do. We both did geography, actually, but he did English and history, I think, uh, as well. And I thought, well, I can't do them because he's done them. What a a crazy thing. Crazy. Yeah. I can't do them because my brother has done them. No, I can't like that pop group. He likes them. No, 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 exactly. So I did maths and physics. Now, maths was sort of all right. Physics, literally didn't understand any of it <laughs> from day one, really. But didn't kind of have the guts to go, do you know what, I just I simply don't understand it. No, can I switch to English, please? Yeah, could I switch to something that which is you can bluff in more? <laughs> Make things up. Can you do, I make stuff up and people go, well, no, that's an interesting argument. Uh, we should give that some, uh, yeah, some merit. <laughs> um, but physics, you know, you either you're right or wrong. Mm. And it was just, a, and in the end, I got an E in physics. Oh, I'd actually wow. been, this again is an example of, you know, all that stuff in COVID when you had to estimate your, you know, the schools are estimating the results yeah. for kids and there's a mm. kind of grade inflation, all that kind of stuff. My predicted grade when I got an E, had been an A. <laughs> now, I don't think I had ever really thought I would get an A, but um, I, I didn't get an A. And I, um, we sent it back, or the school sent it back or something, so this remark this must be wrong. And when I got it, I did think, it was on a bit of paper, it was on a dot matrix printer, and I thought the E, I thought, just forgotten to join the ends of that. <laughs> it's a B, surely that's a B. No, it was an E. So we sent it in for marking, and it came back, and they went, no, it's, a, it's still an E, but I'll tell you what, it's a very high E. <laughs> <laughs> it's nearly a D. <laughs> yeah. So, wow. Um, 
it begs the question, how on earth did you get into Cambridge? I got into Cambridge, one, because it was a completely different world, wasn't it, I think? Mm -hmm. And if I'm honest, it's a much, much fairer world now than it was then. Mm -hmm. But I, I got into Cambridge really because I had a very brilliant geography teacher, so I ended up being a geographer. I'd always wanted to do that, in fact. Mm. And he said, well, it is quite unlikely you'll get in now, but we might as well still try it. And there were five in my year who wanted to do geography. And he said, well, there's no time in the syllabus, actually, but I will teach you at 7.30 in the morning if you come in early and I'll teach you after school at you know, between four and six or something. Amazing. And he did that for a he did that for a term. Wow. And all of us got in. So you could rely on the entrance exam, really. Yeah. So it was the entrance exam and they weren't really as long as you were above a certain threshold, you were right. And as long as you appeared to have some sort of potential. Mm-hmm. And in fact, in the entrance exam, I got a thing called an exhibition, which was a half scholarship. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, that sort of it is amazing, yeah. But they were right, weren't they? What did you get in the end? I got a first. Well, there we are. But I think it was about, you know, there's always that argument in education about are you learning by rote or are you learning how to think? And comedy actually is about how you think, isn't it? It's a sort of slightly odd way of looking at stuff, yeah. isn't it? That's, a, that's pretty much all comedy is. Really. <laughs> it's seeing things from a different, slightly different perspective. And I think I learned that at that point, that you didn't have time to learn everything. So you'd have to sort of try and understand it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And once you underst- once you sort of understood it, you were then able to sort of yes. write. Knowing this, this must also follow. This must there work. And that then might apply to that. Mm. Might. And it worried me the whole way through when my kids were doing uh, English. It surprised me. It made me quite cross, actually, that they, when they were doing poetry, for example, to get through the English exam, you had to learn what a poem meant. But there was no discussion about what a poem meant. And while they were doing that, I was thinking, I don't know how you know what this poem meant. I, it means I'm pretty sure that the poet didn't know. No. I mean, <laughs> there's no room for sort of like personal decision-making. And interpretation. Isn't there that story about Ian McEwan writing an exam on Ian McEwan for his son and getting a D? <laughs> <laughs> isn't it something like that, isn't it? That blows the whole thing out of the water, doesn't it, really? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I can sign the bad thing of my A-level results. But actually, I think... You know, in the end, it sort of all worked out fine. There were some kind of quite interesting lessons to learn mm-hmm. for the rest of it, really. Yeah. At that point. Brilliant. Oh, Hugh, it's been lovely talking to you. Well, and you. Really sweet of you to give me your time. Thank you. <laughs> no problem. Yeah. Also, because I know, although you deny it, that you still have to keep up your MI5 job. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm a sleeper. You're a sleeper. Just, yeah. if there's ever a, a kind of insurrection within the world of comedy... I am the man. <laughs> so be careful, Mike, because I'm... Okay. You know. <laughs> Got away with that one, then. <laughs> People had all sorts of weird jobs. I remember reading this, I think it was a biography of Roald Dahl or someone, that he was employed by the army, I think, at MI5, and his job was, when they were trying to get America into the war, mm. his job was to go to Washington to seduce the wives of American senators and military in order to work out what they were thinking in terms of the US coming to the aid of Europe. Wow. He doesn't mention that in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. No, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, you read it again. It's all there. It's all there. <laughs> James and the Giant Peach ah, is just a, me- uh, just yeah, a yeah, metaphor. Yeah. You know Brilliant. Uh, cool. Hugh, thank you. You are welcome. It's been a delight. I hope it's uh, even remotely listenable. But, <laughs> but there you go. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Hugh Dennis. Thank you for listening. If you've not already done so, please do subscribe, rate, and even review this podcast before you go. And if you want to see what we're up to, you can follow me and My Time Capsule individually, yes, we're both there, on social media. That is Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Do get in touch with us there. We're happy to answer any questions and love to hear suggestions of possible future guests and what you've enjoyed about the episodes you've listened to. Don't forget the theme tune by Pass the Peas Music, which is playing in the background, is available on Spotify. This has been a cast-off production for Acast, produced, as ever, by John Fenton Stevens. OK, no joke today, I'm afraid, as... 
well, I can't think of one. And I don't really want to steal somebody else's joke. I mean, it just makes me feel uncomfortable, you know what I mean? I mean, I could tell you the one about Helvetica and Time's New Roman walking into a bar and somebody shouting, oh, get out of here, we don't serve your type. But I don't think that's mine. Anyway, I'm going to make up a new word. Um, oh, difficult, isn't it? Well, I'm an actor, so play, 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 plagiar, plagiar, plagiarism. Oh, that sounds good. I've not actually decided what it means yet, but it sounds nice. Oh, all right, I will give you a joke. Why did the chicken go to the seance? To get to the other side. Oh, I know what plagiarism means. <laughs> Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.